0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Tess Latham. This is episode 115. Governor Benjamin Durban and his 2,000 men were winding their way through the Amatola Mountains searching for Macomb and Charlie's warriors. The going was tough, albeit the scenery sublime. These glorious mountains were going to lead to one of the more inglorious moments in British military history. By early April 1835, the Boer commanders, the Scots 72 Highlanders, the English Settler Corps and the Cape Coy Regiment were trying to dislodge the macrosa from their mountain fastness. This strange army of men who distrusted each other, this marching formation of mutual suspicion, began to seize closer cattle and raise their homesteads. Most of the engagements were unremarkable, that cause of refusing to stand and fight against overwhelming odds, the British troops becoming frustrated. It was a stalemate broken here and there by bizarre incidents. Like the clash on April 7th, where one of the Scots Highlander officers emerged from battle with an assegai stuck out of his back, a soldier remarked, There's ain't of them things sticking in you, sir, to his shock. Still, they believed that Koza were retreating eastwards towards their regent, Hinsa. In terms of food and resources, the Amat Koza had suffered hugely. Most of their cattle taken, very little food left over. What was anatomy to these warriors, as they observed the war, was that the British shot women and children. Unable to come to close quarter fighting, the men of the empire had resorted to opening fire on the homes and into bushes indiscriminately, also firing their cannon into the huts, this was not how the Khoza fought a war. The Amat Kosa were taking note about how the British treated women and children when fighting, and that was not good news for British women and children in the future. In Zululand, the Impis did make a habit of killing men, women and children, as you've heard and as the Boers were going to discover. Durbin realised that blundering around the mountains was foolish, so he left Major Cox to continue harassing the Khoza among the Amatolas and took the rest of his army, including Colonel Harry Smith, eastwards towards the Kai River, inexorably towards Hintze, and a momentous incident. At least in one sense at this point, Durban didn't beat around the bush, if you excuse the pun. He blamed Hintze for being behind the war, as the king was implicated, if not directly involved. The elderly Boer Stephanus van Weyck had been sent to Hinsa to order him to return all colonial cattle that the Xhosa had driven over the Kai at the beginning of the war in December 1834 and in early 1835. Hinsa was evasive about where the cattle were. De Urban was incensed by his answer and sent back an even more rude message, saying that Xhosa king should come clean about the location of the rustled cows. If he was indeed at peace, said De Urban through van that he should prove it by disassociating himself from Macoma and return the animals that were looted. If not, Hinsa would be regarded as the enemy. Hinsa hedged his response, believing that de Urban was more bluster than muster. But he was wrong. De Urban and Smith began their advance towards his great place across the Kai River on the 11th of April, 1835. Or to be more accurate, Smith began his steady advance as de Urban shuffled along, afraid he was being tricked. The governor did make a very good point. There were no signs of piles of dead warriors. Where were they? Durban was terrified that they'd be outflanked and mauled by these fast-moving ochre-daubed banshees, swift as foxes, tough as rawhide, fearsome as lions, who laughed in the face of his cannon. The evening before they were to march off to the Kai, D'Urban's nerve seemed to have failed him, as he told Smith they shouldn't divide their forces. Then later that same night, he changed his mind again. This flip-flopping was not only an indication of D'Urban's inability to get to grips with war in southern Africa, but his overall ethic, his ideology, was a spongy butter cake of mixed superiority complex and severe spinelessness. What followed were fumbling days and irresolute advance towards an uncowed foe. Smith began to rail about De Urban's cautions and false movements, doubts and fears, while he wrote to his Spanish wife, Juanita, that he wanted to dash for the Kai as swiftly as possible. By day three, they had marched less than thirty miles, when De Urban inexplicably called a halt and called Smith to his side. Shouldn't they reconsider their attack because Henry Somerset was a little late? Smith must have used his poker face at that moment. The next day the two sparring British leaders went on a horse ride with their Boer VIP escorts to discuss what to do away from prying ears. Durbin chafed under Smith's thrusting suggestions and blurted, all is trusted to a blind succession of chances. Smith lost his cool in turn and blurted, general, "'War in itself is a succession of chances like all other games. "'The great science of war is to adapt its principles "'to the enemy you have to contend with and the nature of the country. "'If you do not, you give him so many chances of the game.' "'Oh, certainly, I do not deny that. "'On the contrary, I agree with it,' agreed the governor. "'This was a game of war. "'These two men summarized all the death and the treasure being spent "'on subjecting the Amatosa to a game of empire.' Point made, the march continued towards the Kai River, but once again the large army, large by South African standards, of course, stopped before crossing, and lo and behold, at 4 a.m. the next morning, Smith was awoken by a messenger from D'Urban who said they should not enter the Transkai just yet. Smith dressed and rushed to D'Urban's tent, and after a short argument, the governor said, Pray do not wait for me, Smith, go on, in the classic style of a limp wrist. Smith did just that racing the 11 miles to the Kai River that very morning to be immediately challenged by the Amakosa sentries who crowded the slopes on the opposite mountainous bank. They called out across the divide. What did the English want? This was Hinsa's country, they said. The English had no right to pitch up and drink water from the Kai. Do you remember how the drinking of water had got the Portuguese in big trouble starting from the 1480s? And here was the reference once more to that life-giving elixir on the banks of the Kai circa 1835. You don't just cross someone's river, that's asking for trouble. The urban was now on the cusp of invading Hinsa a major escalation and one that caused the governor to pause once more. He gave hints of five days to decide whether he was a friend or foe, as Harry Smith rolled his eyes on the western bank of the car. Now, sir, Smith said directly to Dobin, let us cross immediately, but the governor hesitated, saying he was full of two or three little doubts, fears, military precautions. Smith could stand it no longer and yelled, Mount! to his men, and then on his horse turned to Durban and said, General, I will cross, and you will see every fellow fly before me. Then pray, send the whole army on. And with that, the colonel spurred his horse across the Kai River at noon on the 15th of April, 1835. It was the first time that the British army, or a colonial army, had entered the country of Galeka, and the first time that they had aimed at their king, Hinsa. The British marched directly to the abandoned Butterworth Missionary Station you heard about last episode. The ruined Wesleyan buildings blackened, the wind whipping through the roofless church in which John Aleph had preached salvation, its broken bell a forlorn reminder of souls unsaved. On the 17th of April, the British camp was assailed there by hundreds of what appeared to be closer warriors dressed for war, assegais, shields, ochre-painted bodies, singing war songs. The alarm was raised, but it wasn't Hinsa's men. It was the Mfengu, who had decided that they no longer wanted to be Hinsa's dogs and preferred to fight against the Koza king. Years of being abused by the Koza, who had promised them at some point they'd become fully Koza, had led to this. Hinsa, of course, did not see it that way. The Mfengu were going to become the settlers' indentured labourers. They were going to be converted from the talekas' hewers of wood and drawers of water, to the English settlers' hewers of wood and drawers of water. They were going to exchange being Hitze's undermenge to being co-opted by the English settlers as farm workers and town labourers. How difficult is this complex web of social interactions to explain to someone who is seeking a simple answer to our layered history? The Mfengu people are very much part of modern South Africa, as are the descendants of the Kaleca, and we should not make the mistake of lumping these people together even today. So in April 1835, the Mfengu chiefs approached Smith's soldiers and swore allegiance to the British now and in the future. A remarkable event, really. These people, who had been chased from pillar to post by the Zulu, then the Ndebele, that cause, were prepared to take a chance with the colonial government. Durban almost went into shock when he spotted these semi-naked warriors approaching as if to attack. Their martial attitude was very much a legacy of their training in Natal, Long ago, they were well able to form up in a regiment and prepare to do battle in very much a mtetwa, unduanwe, um, or zulu, hlube, zizi, nguani way. The mfingo then provided d'urban and Smith with a demonstration of how they drilled, running across a small stream, a drift, that flowed past the battered mission station and the British army camp. Grahamstown Journal editor Robert Godlinton was watching and wrote in his diary. They held their shields over their heads so as to cover and protect the whole person from anything thrown down upon them while crossing, then collected in a dense mass formed in a line too deep, then in three divisions, collected again, danced, whistled from a faint soft strain, until it ended in a roar, shook, their shields and assegais in such a manner that at first it seemed like the wind rustling a few leaves until it rose to the deafening noise of a storm raging amidst the dense foliage of a large forest. Godlinton at Butterworth had just witnessed a scene that the Port Natal traders knew well. The Mtetwa, then Dwandwe, the pre-Zulu powerhouses, the army preparation of Shaka's father's time, Sinzanga Kona. Here they were, cousins of the Zulu, at Butterworth, near the Kai River. Two thousand Mfengu warriors eventually arrived at Butterworth, followed constantly by others, cousins of cousins. Eventually, about 16,000 men, women and children had attached themselves to the British camp. The Mfengu at of Oral History speaks about this time, about how the valleys surrounding Butterworth were covered in Mfengu refugees and their cattle. The British wrote of this in their military logs, Godlinton in his Grahamstown Journal newspaper. But the Mfengu were not alone. Smith was to be joined here by the amaTembu allies of the opportunistic regent Fadana. They gleefully joined the war against their Tyleka enemies and were to capture more than 4,000 cattle as payment. By now Hinsa knew he was in a spot of bother. That Galak had not really prepared for a war. They'd allowed the Rarabi chiefs Makoma and Charlie to rise up while preferring to wait and see. Hinsa had another big problem. His countryside, that rolling Transcai landscape between the Kai River and Mtata, offered virtually no opportunity for tactical retreat or concealment, unlike the ravines of the rivers and the Amatola Mountains. Five days after Smith plunged across the kai, a large group of horsemen could be seen galloping towards the British camp, leaving a cloud of dust behind them. From these horsemen emerged a tall figure who had dismounted, walking towards two British officers, sent to find out what was going on. The tall figure walked forward, held out his hand, and introduced himself by name. Hinsa was all he said. He walked into the British camp, followed by 40 men, looking like figures on a Grecian frieze, wrote Godlinton. Hintzer was more than six feet tall, about 45 years old, dark-skinned with a low and aquiline nose, prominent eyes and lips, as one officer noted. Hintzer was in the lair of the lion, but he was clearly courageous and direct. He also looked at the British with what they called a sinister expression. Harry Smith thought of Hinsa as good-looking, and actually believed he looked a great deal like the English king George IV. Smith wrote later to his wife, Joanita that Hinsa had acted majesty with great dignity, though nearly naked like the rest. That Corsa did not need clothing to achieve dignity, something that the Dutch had discovered two centuries earlier. Hinsa had a leopard-skin cloak of a king, a brass belt around his waist, many brass bracelets, and ivory ring above one of his elbows, and red and white beads around his neck, as well as dotted on one ear. He held six throwing spears in one hand, and his shambuck of rhino hide dangled from his other. Hinsa made a deep impression on all who saw him. Three camp chairs were placed in the open, and Urban Smith and Hinsa sat there for negotiations. Durbin fired the first debating shot, charging the Xhosa king with ingratitude after the British had helped him defeat Matawani of the Nguani. Remember that incident when the British opened fire on the Nguani huts on the upper Mtata River, backed up by the T'aleka, who then took the Nguani cattle only a year before? Durbin said Hinsa had failed to stop Makoma and others from attacking the settlers, that Hinsa had connived in the attack and harbored stolen animals and firearms. Did Hinsa connive? This question is moot. He was obviously sympathetic to his people who were having their land chipped away bit by bit along the Kaiskama into the Amatolas. Who needs to connive when the game is up? Nevertheless, war and peace is all about the law at some point, or at least political ramifications. De Urban ended his long legal lecture with the conditions for peace. Hinsa was to hand over 150,000 cattle and 1,000 horses. A half of that now, the rest in a year's time. Fighting would cease only when the first payment of 75,000 cattle had been made. But that was just the opening salvo. The British wanted Hinsa to execute those Pauza who had killed the traders and the executions would be in the presence of the officials. The traders' families would each get 300 more cattle as compensation. Hinsa was to command Charlie, Makoma, Ngainu and other warring chiefs to stop the fighting. Hinsa sighed as the governor rattled off this list, then shook his head. He was given 48 hours to consider the terms and was to leave two hostages at the British camp as guarantees. The penalties, the cattle in particular, were pretty much impossible to deliver. The Traleka prisoners had pointed out that Fengu who had fought with the British, had also been involved in some looting, while the number of cattle stolen had been inflated by English farmers looking to make a profit on the return of their beasts but the defeated never get to decide the terms, whatever was logical or not. Harry Smith invited Hintzer to dine with him that night, and was then surprised by the Clauser King's debating prowess. It must be remembered that the Clauser did everything from memory. There was no writing, so Hintzer's mind was far sharper when it came to the immediacy of a debate than most. It was what Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, had done, creating sharp dialogues of question and answers, and issuing the written word. Because Hinsa could approach difficult conversations deploying deep tricks of memory, discussing issues with someone like Smith was a fairly simple proposition. Hinsa finally agreed to the terms, just to get the British to leave the Transvaal. The next morning, a gathering of great pomp and circumstance presented itself. All the troops gathered in their finery, governor at their head, Smith, Hinsa and his councilors opposite. Bizarrely, Smith had apparently been so impressed by Hintze's negotiating powers the previous night that he said he would stand with the chief, having pledged myself to be Hintze's patron and answer to the governor for his fidelity. had publicly agreed to the terms as they were read out. Then Smith, sensing a moment of great drama, rose up, and cried out melodramatically, Now let it be proclaimed far and near that the great chief Hintzer has concluded peace with the great king of England, and let the cannon fire. And lo, the cannon did fire. Whereas the war had been declared by a single cannon shot in December, now peace was saluted with three guns booming away in succession. Boom, boom, boom. Smith and Hintzer had what the colonel called a capital breakfast and the closer king was given some British trinkets, the officers guffawing and well dunning each other as if it was the end of a perfectly good polo match. It wasn't the end of the war, however. While these men were deluding themselves, Maccrawmer and Charlie were far away, busy as ever, leading the English and the Boers and the Koi and the others on a wild goose chase. Hinsa was also fibbing. He was completely unable to control these chiefs. The Dutch had made the same mistake, they ascribed a kind of European sensibility about royal decrees. Here in Africa, kings were only kings if the people thought so. But Palmer and Charlie were masters of their own fate, something neither Smith nor Dobin could understand. But Hintzer was on the hook here, and so he offered himself and his son Sarili as the two hostages. But the governor said they could leave at any time. All that they had to do was produce the 75,000 head of cattle in five days. In other words... They couldn't leave at any time. They were hostages. The British may as well have asked him to fly to the moon and bring back moon dust. While Smith and Urban ho hoed their way through another dinner, Hinsa sent messengers to Makoma and Charlie, telling them that he was now a prisoner of the British, a hostage. He also sent a second set of messages to his minor chiefs, telling them to take all the cattle and to flee as far east as possible, away from the British and the colonials he bought some time, but at his own expense. Durbin, content that the war was apparently over, ordered his army to march back west towards the Kai River. Within 48 hours, though, everything was going to fall apart. The move began on the 2nd of May, 1835, and along the way to the new British camp, they came across Hintz's brother, Buru, who was bringing the first consignment of 75,000 cattle Picture the scene, if you will, because instead of a rampant herd of thousands, Buru brought twenty cows with him. Two zero. They were all the colonial cattle he could find, said Buru, scratching his head, no doubt looking as depressed as possible. Smith and Durban were enraged and announced that the army would halt right there and then, still on Kraleka land and wait for the tens of thousands of beasts. Watching these antics with the Bowker brothers, some of the settler guards and the Boers, they knew exactly what was going on and waited for reality to strike these two British officials who'd only recently been pronking about, boasting about, besting the closer. This reality bit on the same day when an urgent message arrived from Henry Somerset to say that the Traleka had begun killing the Mfengu for joining the British. This killing had actually been going on since the 24th of April the oral history has a very clear narrative about all of this. The Mfengu took advantage of Hinsa's captivity and began to seize his cattle from the numerous cattle posts scattered around the Transcar. These Mfengu had been tasked by the Traleka to look after their beasts. Hinsa had lent them the cows to maintain. When Traleka chieftains heard about this liberty being taken with their cattle, they attacked the Mfengu, whether Hinsa wanted them to or not. It was a matter of honour said the oral historians. The wheels came off this whole negotiated settlement Fandango. Durban threatened Hinsa, saying the Mfengu killing should be stopped within three hours. What miracle, you'd ask in the days before mobile phones. The British would start shooting two members of Hinsa's retinue for every Mfengu killed thereafter. If that didn't stop the killings, then the British would hang Hinsa, his son Sarili, and Buru, the bringer of the pathetically tiny herd of twenty cows. Durban pointed to the tree under which they were sitting, indicating the chief would dangle from that very branch. Hinser was seriously confused. Why is there so much made of the Mfengu? Are they not my dogs? He said once more. Cannot I do with them as I like? Still, he sent a messenger off to order the chiefs to stop killing the Mfengu. Events were going to speed up from here on. 150 warriors who arrived were disarmed. Smith threatened Hinsa again, saying he, his son, and Buru were going to be sent to Robben Island Prison. It was then that De Urban decided on two other main projects that would change southern African history. First, he wanted to send all the Mfengu into the Cape Colony, these 16,000 people. There would be useful laborers, he thought, and could even be another buffer zone like the English 1820 settlers. Secondly, He extended the Cape's borders all the way to the Kai River. Remarkably, dear listener, by the stroke of his 19th century quill, the Mfengu had become the first black indigenous inhabitants of South Africa to be declared British subjects. They were not Koi, they were not San, they were not the West African or Madagascan or Mozambican freed slaves who were now also subjects in the Cape. No, these were the first people of the South who called themselves British. Furthermore, They would be given land between the Fish and Kaiskama rivers, now that the real owners were booted out, and become a black buffer zone against the Amatosa. Meanwhile, Hinsa and Smith continued their daily debates, which ultimately ended in bloodshed of the most heinous kind. More about that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you feel that way. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog. If you want to contact me, there's an email form. Or through Twitter. At Dares Latham. Until next, goodbye.